Hello, you're listening to The Take with Drew Malone. On this special episode of The Take, COVID, the aftershock. Hi, on The Take today, we're talking about the economy and the aftershock from the COVID-19 pandemic and economic turmoil. A very interesting uh, article came out today from CNN Business, which was also reflected upon Fox News and uh, other national news outlets. And that is an article discussing the current state of uh, the fuel supply in this country. And the article's main point was that the current fuel supply in our country is uh, in good shape. That we will have an estimated amount of fuel to continue on into the foreseeable future. The problem isn't so much the supply itself, but the ability to get the supply from producer to market. And that is the real concern. You see, as the pandemic hit us suddenly in the March of 2020, uh, companies, gas-producing companies, begin to really curtail their workforce, furlough their employees, and really cut back on the amount of gas that was being produced. And this was largely because the demand for gas was much, much, much lower because people just weren't going out. They were staying near home. They weren't going on vacation. Companies weren't sending their employees anymore. And then as we began to get vaccinated, as the country begins to turn back to normal, as the COVID restrictions began to get lifted, more and more people started having sort of the spring fever. And all of a sudden, again, the attitude of the consumer changed. And we have this sudden change in attitude that goes from we want to lock ourselves inside of our houses, stay in our own communities, to we want to go out and travel, experience the world. People, I think, in reflection... uh have decided that uh, to really live and experience life, which is a great, great thing coming out of this pandemic, if, if, any, if anything comes out of this pandemic. I think that's a very positive thing. But it does have a pretty large effect, and that is during the course of 2020, there was a big, big displacement in the labor market. Who was working where changed suddenly. We have people, we have drivers who have very specific driving skills in driving those oil tankers. They become displaced from the workforce. They retire. They seek out a uh, another job. They go to a different kind of labor market. They might go to a different industry even. They're no longer with the labor force, yet the demand for gasoline is shooting up while the supply, or 
not the supply, but the ability to distribute the supply remains very, very weak. And that, in turn, is estimated to drive up the price of oil and also, in turn, drive up the price at the pump. And we've already seen this since uh, the ter- the turn of the new year that, uh, on average, I believe the price of the pump in the United States is 289 when at this time last year it was down, you know, probably 180 190 $2. You know, so it's gone up significantly. I mean, and even more here in Washington State and that, oh, I, could, I think I paid... I think I paid three twenty nine a gallon the other day when I fueled up here in Washington. So there is a, it's a significant rise while the ability and supply of gasoline remains pretty low. And there's, there's a fix for this problem. Uh, get more people, get more skilled people trained in this particular job and then you know the supply can catch up with the demand but it'll take a while for sure and in the meantime if gas cannot be delivered in a plentiful supply then that also means that uh the other supplies and the cost of those things go up as well Uh, regular consumer products so we could be seeing a pretty interesting summer i would think uh with uh, the raise in uh, regular consumer goods that, that you know you'd get at the grocery store, milk, bread, anything that comes on the truck, because, I mean, basically you have a situation where, you know, you might have willing and able drivers, but companies might uh, find the price too sharply, or the supply of gasoline too little in order to warrant very many trucks going out, even though the demand might be there, of course. And also, I mean, we've had other labor dislocation going on, too. I don't know if you've been to a Starbucks recently, but Starbucks has been experiencing a nationwide shortage in uh, in goods. I don't know. I went into Starbucks today, and uh, the shelves are bare. You know how they normally have snacks and and food boxes on in the refrigerated section. It, there's nothing there. They're uh, uh, over the uh, behind the counter goods. You know the the bagels, the the uh, breakfast bars, the the muffins, things like that. There's hardly any of it, and what is there looks old because I mean. They have had a significant shortage of delivery drivers in the last week. They they were even out of uh, uh, plastic stoppers, which they've never been out of plastic stoppers before. But it's happened, though, because even Starbucks, as much as, you know, they've weathered the pandemic well, they have, they cut back supply because demand had been cut back. And now, again, the economy is, you know, recovering a little bit. The momentum is beginning to come back. And they're having these supply shocks going on. 
and will this last forever? No, but it, it is, certainly is a very interesting phenomenon. And I think a very unique phenomenon. It's not too many times in history that at least I know of in r- recent memory that such a uh, rapid change in consumer habit happens as did in 2020. I mean, the world ground to a halt within uh, a week or two or three, just like that. And, you know, consumer habits that had been long, long standing just stopped all of a sudden. And then it's been slower, the kind of recovery, bring back to return to normal. But it, it is still happening rather quickly. And in so many respects, the supply chain for so many industries is depleted because of how they chose to survive the pandemic. Essentially, the you know your game plan when supply when demand goes way down is you cut supply, you cut off your your liabilities, you become a seller's market rather than than a buyer market. You know, a good example of this is um, I recently went on a uh, trip. I flew out to uh, Columbia, South Carolina to see a friend. And I was going to fly into Columbia, South Carolina, see my friend a while, and then I I was going to drive from Columbia to uh, Charleston and fly out of Charleston after a few days experiencing the sights and sounds of Charleston. And uh, about the Friday before I was going to, or the, the day I was going to leave, I get a call from the rental company and the uh, rental location, and they say that uh, I'm going to need to return the car to the same location that I had originally got it. And that uh, quite upset me because that wasn't the original deal. And this ended up having to change my plans, and it cost me about an extra $200. Uh, to change my flight to fly out of Columbia again. And uh, they cited the the problem was a a uh, supply shortage of supply of cars that they couldn't afford to now have one of their cars in Sh- Charleston. And um, that was an interesting. Uh, interesting problem to have. And as I sort of collected myself, I begin to understand it from their point of view that essentially, I mean, you have these companies that, you know, went into 2020 with a good supply of cars to where something like, you know, getting a car in one city and returning it in a different city was a very viable option for a company like Enterprise to do. And, you know, at some point it just didn't become viable anymore because the cost and expense of getting it back to that original city or the cost or an expense of, you know, just not having a one car there anymore is too much because, you know, 
all while nobody was traveling, what they were doing, of course, is, you know, cutting supply and hoping to be able to save, you know, employees' jobs or, you know, keep the company afloat. And then all of a sudden, everything switches again, you know, this year, where all of a sudden there's a huge demand for cars and supplies are low, you know. And it's not like, you know, these companies just have, you know, huge bucks sitting around anymore, you know, to to just, you know, buy and resupply themselves all of a sudden because, you know, they've been they've been burning that money trying to stay alive during this pandemic and this economic shutdown. So it's a really tricky situation, really, really, when you think about it. And I mean, that's one big example of that supply shortage. I, uh, when I was returning the car, in fact, there was, there was a woman that just had come into the, into the, uh, store and she said, basically, you know, she just kind of came in with a normal attitude of, oh, I'm going to come in I need to rent a car for the weekend. It was, see, I returned it on a Thursday and she needed to rent a car over the weekend. And they basically said, we don't have one to give you. You know, they're, they're, they're all being, they're all being used. And the town I happen to be in near Columbia had no other rental car agencies. So she was just out of luck. She couldn't do what she needed to do. And it sounded a, like very urgent business, whatever she, it was she needed to do. And uh, she was distraught, very, very upset. But, I mean, that's simply kind of the way things are. That if you want to rent a car nowadays, it's going to be very expensive. And even for me, it was very expensive <laughs> to rent this car. Um... There was a lot of expense involved, but it was worth it because it was a very, very worthwhile trip. But nonetheless, that's an interesting principle of of uh, the economics because the way the mar- labor market and supply has changed rapidly really, really has Strange effects. I'm wondering, you know, what is this summer going to look like as the uh, more as the eviction moratoriums end, as the uh, stimulus ends to companies? Are you know the middle-sized corporations or small businesses are they going to survive? You know, all of a sudden, you know, they have this stimulus coming in, and now they don't. Or what happens to all these Americans, you know, kind of living right on the edge? Or people that haven't had jobs and they've been relying on government checks. Are they going to, have they become so dislocated from their former jobs that they won't be able to get a job to support their families anymore? I mean, you know, they're a real big question when it comes to, you know, how do we come out the backside of this pandemic? 
you know, what is what is the overall market going to look like? Now, it sounds like uh, from Mr. Biden's uh, plan that he's looking to essentially just, you know, keep pumping uh, uh, stimulus into the economy, you know, have have a more, I don't know, uh, Roosevelt-esque economic plan of essentially, you know, having government subsidize work, government subsidize this, that. And I wonder, you know, how, how long is that reliance going to happen? You know, once you start, once everyone has a college degree, you know, because it's virtually been handed out by the government, the the money or whatever, is a college, is a bachelor's degree going to be worth anything anymore? I, I don't really know. It's kind of like, there's a lot of questions when it comes to, you know, just getting the taxpayers to, to fund things. And there's a lot of questions in regards to, you know, if college is very expensive, which it is, I, I'd say that college prices are horrendous, but does just saying boom, free college, is that going to solve the problem? Is that going to solve the problem of why colleges are expensive? Why, you know, the university itself has, has, you know, big debts to pay nowadays with, you know, uh, huge departments, you know, uh, huge diversity departments and huge amounts of money going towards you know, ever-growing athletic departments and stadiums. I mean, you take Washington State, for example. Washington State, during the Mike Leach era, which I was very glad that they had an improvement to the stadium, but to be able to keep up with recruits, you know, they they pumped a whole bunch of money into Martin Stadium to try to improve the, the uh, facade of the stadium, and built, a, you know, the athletic center, you know. All this money is going towards the football program, which, of course, brings money into the university. But, you know, they're running huge deficits to the point now where, you know, the university is having to talk about what is it we're going to cut, you know, because all of a sudden you've had these big capital projects that, you know, help you in the now but when the bill comes due like you know what is it that you're going to do you know what is it that you're going to do and the answer unfortunately usually seems to be well raise tuition you know that's kind of the traditional answer just raise tuition you know pay for the next thing you know make this college more relevant, make this, you know, building the, the state of the art building instead of making something that, you know, gets the job done. Everything kind of, all these universities want to have the state of the art buildings that have the, you know, eye candy attractive design to get the, to get, you know, the best, uh, 
the best uh, scholars and the best professors and the best students to go there. And it's just a little bit, uh, I, I, I think that's killing us. It's killing us because we, we come out with increasingly expensive university, increasing debt for uh, younger people, and then, you know, really unhelpful solutions when it comes to government subsidized uh, and taxpayer subsidized uh, college debt. So I, I, it seems very pointless to me and very frustrating that these colleges are running up huge debts and then expecting their, you know, graduates to, to pay for it in their tuition or their housing costs. And then, you know, turning around and all of a sudden, you know, the taxpayer now has to take care of the building spree that the that the college board wants to do on the university campus to be able to get the best quarterbacks and and running backs. It's just it's just a, a screwy situation, but it's a situation that continues to to escalate essentially. And it, I mean, you you look at how and. What is what is it going to be like when you know college athletes start to get paid? You know, when college athletes are starting to get paid, are we going to have you know the best and the brightest college athletes? the The best quarterback in college football is going to get you know these big contracts paid for by by the budgets, the athletic budget, which is in turn paid for by uh the the tuition costs which in turn is paid for by government subsidies so essentially it's going to be you know taxpayer welfare for a quarterback to get paid to play a game that's uh that that's some pretty screwed up stuff right there i can't i can't get behind that but, you know, you, you see this coming down the road and you see, you know, as we go deeper and deeper into this thing and it's like, and it's like, you know, nobody, nobody is, is here pointing this out or at least few people are. Nobody's saying, hey, there's some significant problems with this idea to, to, you know, suddenly subsidize all these things, you know. When you subsidize something, you are making an active choice to move the expense of something from one group of people to another. Uh, President Biden talks about how he wants to essentially raise the business tax. Well, raising taxes on business people isn't what the Democrats want to pretend it is, and Raising taxes on businesses isn't going to be this thing where, you know, millionaires just, you know, reach into their secret vault and go, well, darn it, I I, I had to, all this money, you know, stowed away in this vault now, and 
And, uh, you know, now that Biden says I should, I'm just going to hand over the, the money now. Two things. Whoever these, you know, millionaire businessmen, billionaires, they have lawyers that are very good at, at finding loopholes. One thing. Two, they, they already pay quite a bit in, in taxes. All right? And three, the, the people that are going to be most affected by this are the normal uh, middle class people who probably haven't been around that long, the, the people who haven't been in their job that long, who do a fine job at their company, they're going to be the first to go as they will, instead of offsetting, you know, their own stuff, they'll unfortunately look to cutting out the bottom guy. It's, it's, it's not, it's not out of malice. I don't think it's out of economic reality. Unfortunately, when, when the big guy loses, so does the little guy. I mean, that's sort of the way economics have always worked. But we have this this dream that, you know, every one of these corporations have, are just, you know, sitting on piles of money that they're just too, they're just too arrogant and and horrible to share with their employees you know it, it's it's honestly like pretty amazing like you get uh, one a great example would be you know uh, airline industry they barely make it barely make it especially th- through this pandemic because the cost of of paying your pilots, of paying the people on the ground, paying the air traffic control, paying for the gate, paying for the fuel, all of that expertise that is needed, all of those supplies that are needed, they barely break even. And these companies have been running up the debt, the debt, because of the lack of demand over the last year. And it has been tragic for them and the fact that we have these people in congress and these people around the country that are just in this la la land pretending that you know they are sitting on piles of money like like uh scrooge mcduck you know diving into (laughs) into you know gigantic vaults of money are completely you know unrealistic unrealistic yeah, I mean, there's, there's enormous, enormous wealth in the, you know, the the one percent of the one percent, but you know, a lot of businesses are scraping by, and you know, their their CEOs are probably quite rich, but you know, if you distributed, say, say you t- you take Bill Gates. You take Bill Gates. He's what uh, worth ninety billion, something like that. I mean, what, what would Bill Gates if you cut Bill Gates's salary or net worth 
and handed a, a check out to every American. Okay, let's do these this math here. Okay, uh, so we divide the American population, or probably start with this money, ninety billion divided by, I think three hundred thirty was the latest census. 330. Let's see. It said 330. Sorry, folks. Oh, one more zero. So if you uh, cut all the total American population by about... Bill Gates's net worth, you would have a total of two hundred and seventy-two dollars and seventy-two cents going to Americans. Woohoo! Every American's getting two hundred and seventy-two dollars. Now it's crazy that Bill Gates has that much money, but you know, uh, we're talking about huge deficits here. You take even the one percent. What Biden's talking about, you know. And funding the $6 trillion he's talking about with whatever the 1% net worth or a, even a chunk of that. It's, that's not even going to scratch the surface. And he's still, he, he's, out here, he's out here lying about the fact that, oh, you know, uh, this, this program to raise the taxes on the 1%, it's going to, it's going to pay for itself. It's going to pay for itself. And... No, it's not. No, it is not. The, it'll scratch the surface, and then the deficit will go up even more, and so will the debt. That's what Obama said, and that's what every person that ever says, let's tax the rich. That's what it happens every time. The deficit goes up, the debt goes up, because the amount we're talking about here is massive. Six trillion dollars. Six trillion dollars. I mean, it's it's unbelievable amounts of money. Six trillion dollars. How, how much is that for the entire population? If you taxed the entire population of the United States equally, how far would six trillion get you? Okay, let me make sure I'm typing this right. Okay, I need one more set of zeros. All right, six trillion divided by 330 million. You'd be talking about a debt responsibility of from each citizen of eight. $18,181. And that's just for what he's proposing, friends. That's the responsibility of every American, whether that be man, woman, child, whatever whatever gender you would want to consider yourself. That's $18,000. How many Americans have eight just have $18,000 just sitting around i mean some of them do some some people you know save well uh, i mean i have that much money in the bank but there's a lot of people that uh, 
don't have anywhere close to that. That's all of the Americans. And then saying that we're going to take the 1% of the 1%. No, no. Either it's going to be found, have a found a way around it, you know, or, you know, businesses just move out. They outsource to a country that's more favorable for them. One thing I, I, I don't understand why the Democrats are always so antagonistic with big business. Big business, I think, can offer, you know, a very, very good incentive. Honestly, big business, in many cases, companies like Amazon, companies like, um, you know, Boeing, you know, they pay their employees well in some cases. You know, and they have the wiggle room to be able to, you know, hire very professional people and incentivize them to work there. Yet there's this antagonistic relationship. If you want to, you know, incentivize, you know, a corporate culture that, you know, economically is socially responsible, then why don't you incentivize it if you're the government? Why don't you offer tax breaks to companies that that do X, Y, Z? You know, why, why is it that we either have to be not antagonistic in stuff like that or, you know, only, you know, according to the Democrats, only the, only the rich benefit from tax cuts? You know, why can't it be both? I don't understand why it can't be both. Offer the carrot. Offer the carrot. But that's exactly the thing. That's exactly the thing. It's never been for them about... uh, about, you know, making more socially responsible companies or more economically responsible companies. It's never been about sort of the the 19th century conception of, you know, um, the social mandate of corporations. It's never, never been that for the current Democrats. It's about having a greater role of the government in the life of the citizen. The subsidize college, the subsidize preschool, the subsidize this, that child child uh, payment. It's a greater role because these people believe in and, you know, worship the state and worship the idea of government intervention. So the idea of, you know, incentivizing a a socially responsible company that takes care of their employees and wants to, you know, uh, be leaders of social responsibility, it, you know, give their employees generous bonuses or, you know, uh, fully 
care for, you know, uh, donate different X, Y, Z, whatever it is, whatever it is. The idea of fostering social responsibility was never in the cards. It is never in the cards. And, you know, you just look at the mainstream media's reaction to Biden's speech. They were like, you know, yay, you know, Biden's wants a greater role for government in the lives of of regular Americans. Yay, yay, yay. And they're, you know, decrying the last 60 years where that really hasn't been the case. And it's it's kind of bleh. It's bleh. Because, you know, a socially responsible company is a company I really respect. You you have, you know, great, gr- great uh, companies that took care of their employees in the 50s and 60s and offered them good wages and things like that. And, you know, Biden could be out here saying, hey, we're going to do everything we can to incentivize a company taking care of their employees or doing this or doing that. But no, it's really not that. It's more, how do we subsidize this, subsidize that? How do we do this? How do we do that? How do we get more of taxpayer dollars in the pockets of XYZ Americans? And it's too bad because I I think it turns out very, very poorly. I think it does. We'll see. This has been Drew Malone with The Take.